0: Why don't you open up your Bibles, because the Bible is a great place to start this morning. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 22, and there's Bibles on your table, and if you want to take one of those Bibles home, totally cool. It's not stealing, because I'm giving you my permission. So Matthew 22, I want to begin with reading a parable of Jesus. As you noticed when you picked up your skillet today, we call them skillets, because they're Sunday school millets genius huh I didn't come up with it <clears throat> Matthew 22 I'm just gonna read the first 14 verses we're talking about parables and so this is a very interesting parable it's Jesus says it's about the kingdom of heaven and so listen closely Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle. They have butchered, and everything is ready. Sounds like a cool party, don't you think? Butchered cattle, yeah. (laughs) Some of you vegetarians don't think so. It's okay. Come to the wedding banquet. But, verse 5 says, they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business, They rest, uh, the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I did, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the the guests, he noticed that there was a man not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without your wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. It's an interesting parable, maybe a confusing parable, but we're going to talk about it today. So let's just pray. Let's open up in prayer. God, we do right now just invite you in here, Jesus. We just tell you that our hearts are open to you, that our mind is open to you. We are ready and willing for you to speak to us in a spiritual way, God, in a way that maybe transcends our thoughts, that that we can learn knowledge, but you, God, will transcend that and just teach us something right to our own spirits this morning, God, that we could experience you by reading these parables that are in your word of God called the Bible. And so we just thank you, and we praise you this morning. And everybody screamed, amen. Wow, that was good. Good job. I love interaction. I love it when you guys scream. Some teachers wouldn't like that. I happen to like screaming. Maybe I should teach middle school. <laughs> then, then I probably wouldn't like it very much, huh? Well, this is the Mill Sunday School. Thank you all for coming. A lot of you are on time today. I'm impressed, because there's, there's there'll be a lot of people that come in late. That's OK, too. But you guys are the chosen, the good ones. Sunday School is all about um, training in the knowledge of God. And I said last week that we, as the Mill Sunday School, are kind of the nerds of Mill Sunday School, but in a good way. (laughs) Somebody said amen. (laughs) Do you like being the nerds of the Mill? I think it's a good thing. And so Sunday School is designed to give us a foundation of knowledge about who God is, about the Bible, and so on and so forth. Because I think that Sometimes, let me just tell you a story real quick. When I was in high school, I became a Christian. And when you're in high school, so a lot of times, how many of you were a Christian in high school? And so you went to the, you did the church thing and all that in high school. Um, I, I, there was a lot of retreats that our, my high school youth group would go on. We'd do these sweet retreats. And a lot of times we'd go somewhere cool, like a ski trip or a trip to the beach or just really cool stuff to get more kids to come and then talk to them about the Bible. And then a lot of the kids would say, yes, this is all for me. I'm going to accept Jesus Christ. And out of those, that group of kids that accepted Jesus Christ, some of them went on. Like I went on and accepted Jesus Christ and am still a Christian today and say, yes, God, uh, God is true. The Bible is true. I believe in what he has done for me. But some of the students that became Christians over this weekend retreat um, became Christians and then the next week just stopped going to youth group. They said, yeah, I became a Christian, but uh, it's just not for me anymore. There there wasn't there was this pep talk and there was this emotional experience that they had, but there wasn't any foundational knowledge to go with their faith. And ladies and gentlemen, we need both. We need the head, the knowledge, and we need the heart response. Right? Yes. So that's what Sunday school is all about. We don't really do worship in here as far as music, because I'm not very good at it. And uh and so we go, after this, we go into the main sanctuary, usually sit in section 11, right? And we experience worship and worship God with our heart and have a heart response. But hitting here, it's all about kind of being nerdy, kind of about getting the knowledge of God. Are you with me? Yeah. Of course you are. All right, let's do a little review. In your notes, it says review. If you're taking down notes, uh, there's pins on your table all ready for you. Hopefully you got one of these when you came in. But as a review, review. Um, you know, a lot of college classes, if you're in a Christian college, a lot of times if you're getting your Bible degree or theological degree or Bible doctrine degree, um, often there will be a whole semester course on the parables of Jesus, and for good reason. Last week we said that one-third, a whole third of Jesus' teaching was in parables. And so if your Bible has red letters, like my Bible has red letters, those, the red letters are the words of Jesus, one-third of those red letters fit into words that are part of parables. Is that a lot? Yeah, it's a whole lot. It's a whole bunch. A third is a lot of somebody's teaching to be in stories. We have in history, if we look at history and say, who else liked to tell parables? Well, a lot of people like, liked to teach in parables. There was ancient Greek people, um, ancient Jewish people that talked in parables. But nobody, nobody before Jesus talked in as much parables as we have recorded for Jesus. Someone would ask Jesus a question, and instead of telling the person the answer, he would say, it's kind of like this, and then he would tell a story. Wouldn't it be cool if some of us talked like that? It's like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Well, it's kind of like this. Two men went into a field. One had seeds, one didn't. (laughs) Wouldn't that be funny? (laughs) I think it would be really cool. It would take a very creative and artistic person. And so I just think it's really cool that our God You know, Jesus is God, right? Jesus, God, same thing, one in being with the Father. That Our God came to this earth and didn't just teach like this. He could have just taught like this. He could have just stood up and said, God is good. Prayer is good. You need to repent to be forgiven. He could have just taught like that, gave a ton of bullet points. Instead, he told parables He told the parable about how prayer is good. He said, here's a parable about a persistent widow that goes to the judge and begs the judge, and then the judge changes and and relents and allows this widow to have what she wanted. Or here's a parable about how God is like this this boss man that hires a bunch of people and then pays them all the same wage, even if they only worked a half hour. They pay him for the whole day's wage. Isn't that good and good and cool of our God? Jesus told parables, And I think last time we talked about the reason why Jesus talked about parables is to get a heart response. I'll explain what that means in a second. But sometimes, if we look at these parables, the parables in and of themselves were the teaching of God, were the teachings of Jesus. Jesus was asked a question, and then he tells a story. And very rarely, my friends, do we have Jesus explaining what the parable meant. I can only find one example where Jesus tells the parable. It's the one of the seeds and the soil. Some of you might be familiar with that parable. But his disciples come to him afterwards and say, Jesus, what does that parable mean? And so he explains, well, the seed is, 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 the, is the good news of God. Satan is the bird that eats it up. Uh, the weeds are the worries of the earth. He explains that parable. But all the other parables, I can't find him telling a parable and then explaining it. It's as if the parables in and of themselves are the teaching. I have a pet peeve. You know what a pet peeve is? It's something that annoys you, but it really shouldn't annoy you that much. But it just overly annoys you for some reason. Like my wife doesn't like it when I leave the toilet seat up. I mean, it's really not that big of a deal, right? The the girls are like, actually, it is a big deal. (coughs) Um, My pet peeve is this. I don't like it when someone tells a story or a parable or an analogy or does a drama. And then immediately after that drama or that parable or that story or that sermon illustration is told, they get up and explain it. As if you all are retarded and dumb and can't figure it out. Is anybody with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? There's, because uh, <laughs> like sometimes the story will be so powerful. You'd be like, wow, that was a powerful illustration. Maybe your eyes are watering up. Do you understand what it means? Of course you do. Your eyes are watering up. It's a powerful story. And then the person kind of ruins it and says, well, here's exactly what it means. Let me spell it all out for you. It's like, dude, I don't need that. You just hit me. I was touched. I was crying, for goodness sakes. You don't need to explain what that story was. I think that's how Jesus did it. He just told the story. He let the power go out and hang there. I was watching, um, I watched a movie last week called Amelie. You know, it's like a French film. You've got to watch it in subtitles. It's very, very artistic if you've seen it. It's, it's just a really ar- interesting artistic movie. And so I liked it. And I was like, wow, this is kind of cool because, you know, I'm the same guy that does the Friday night shows, right? So I like videos. I like just movies and stuff. So I decided to watch it again and, and watch it with the uh, director's commentary. Any film nerds like to do that? Rewatch them? Nobody? Okay, a couple of you. All right. We got, I got a shout-out. All right. There's like three of you. I love to do that. Maybe it's just a nerd thing to do—to rewatch the movie you just watched with the director's commentary on it. So I did that, and the director—the first thing he said—it was—he he was talking in English, and he said, he- "Hello, ladies." They always start off with "Hello, ladies and gentlemen." I'm director so and so. This is—you're watching *Amelie*, and I'm going to give you my commentary as we go along. And then he said, "The first thing I want to say is, do not watch this. It's going to ruin the movie for you. It's going to take the magic away." from the movie for you. And so please, this is only for you that want to make films and, and learn about how we, how we did the film. But my producers are making me do this. And, and so don't watch this. It'll ruin the artistic value of the movie for you. And I think that's true. It'll ruin someone explaining exactly what everything means. It kind of takes away the heart response in a little way. And so last week we talked about how Jesus, we, we asked the question, why did Jesus talk? in parables? He didn't have to, but he did. We answered the question by saying well that stories, analogies, illustrations don't really speak to our mind, they speak to our heart. I mean how many of you have cried in math class? You're like, oh this is so good, calculus. Oh man, this calculus equation is so beautiful. Maybe some of you did, some of you just rose your hand. You're real nerds. But how many of you honestly have cried like in literature class, maybe, maybe not in the class itself, that might be a little over the top. But uh, maybe reading a good book. You're in your literature class. You've cried reading a book. Sure, I bet some of you probably have. Um, and so there's a, the, the parable, the story speaks to our heart because Jesus wants us to know the knowledge, but then he wants that knowledge to travel. The 12 inches, which I, with my old youth pastor said, the hardest distance to travel is the 12 inches between a man's or a woman's mind and their heart. And so, that because our heart, just the emotionalism, the, uh, the response, the change of life comes, I mean, we can know about God, but that doesn't necessarily give us salvation. We have to know God with our heart and respond to his ways. And so that's why we said Jesus must have talked in parables, because it helps us make it easier to give a heart response to God. Amen. Thank you. All right. Here's... here's um, Here's some things you may or may not want to take down as notes. They're kind of notey things. How to interpret a parable. I'm going to list five um, movements of how you might interpret a parable. I'm not going to talk too long about it because it's, oh, that's scary. It's, uh, it's interesting stuff, but it's, it's stuff that, it just kind of makes sense. Man, I'm struggling. Oh, God. <laughs> that is a little gross. Sorry about that. Dang it! All right, I'm gonna set it down. It's like booby trapped up here. Okay, I got it. I got it. Everybody, just relax. Okay, if you if you happen to be taking notes, uh, write down one, two, three, four, five. I'm gonna give you the five. Um, they're kind of like steps, I guess, to interpreting the pair A. One, two, three, four, and five. Man, that was a bad decision, putting that eraser in my mouth. I didn't realize how much it tastes like markers. <laughs> That's a little better. All right. Um, if you have been in Sunday school for a little while, you might be able to finish this quote that I've given you a couple times. And I, it, it says that the Bible is not written to us. The Bible is written... Yes, it makes me so happy that a lot of you got that. The Bible's not written to us. This book is not dr- written to Joe Kirkendall, Mill Sunday School teacher, 2007 at New Life Church. It, but it's written for me. And if that's the first time you've you've heard that, that quote, you might be like, whoa, what kind of church is this? Is it They don't believe in the Bible? No, 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 you're getting it all wrong. We believe in the Bible. But let's look at it seriously and say that some of these books, for instance, one of the best examples is, like the letter, the 1st uh, the, the and 2nd Corinthians are letters to the church at Corinth. In, the, in the, like 60 AD, they're actual letters from Paul to a church in Corinth. They're not to you and me, New Life Church, but they're for us, right? I'm so distracted by the motorcycle. <laughs> if I had the gift of immortality, I would go out and buy one today. What was I saying? Man, I get so distracted. Remember last week, or a couple weeks ago, there was a balloon floating around? (laughs) That was a good one, too. All right. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So we can't, some of you, hopefully none of you, excuse me, hopefully none of you, um, when you do your your Bible study in the morning uh, or in the afternoon or whenever, maybe just once a week or whenever you really want to get into the Word, you don't just say, okay, God, speak to me, and you close your eyes and pop down your finger and say, okay, this is my verse. I'm just going to do whatever it says. That's a really bad way of doing a Bible reading or a Bible study. We need to, the best way of doing a Bible study, and not that God can't speak through, um, you know, I I love just reading through the Psalms and just saying, God, just speak into my heart. I'm just going to read this and just concentrate on you and let your words come into my heart. And that's a cool way of doing it. But if that's all you do, if that's all you do, then you're, you're missing some of what the Bible has to tell you because the Bible's not written to us. It's written for us. And so we need to interpret things. We need to get into the parable. And like today, we're going to reinterpret the parable that I read this morning about the wedding banquet. So number one, this one, you, I'll put it up here, and then you'll say, duh. Are you ready to say duh after I write it down? <laughs> Was it Duh. Read it. And, that's not, it's actually not, it. and when I say read it, it's kind of like the duh. But I want you to read it with eyes. And with the mindset that it's not written to you, but it's written for us. And it's, and it's written um, in an ancient culture. And Jesus was around, you know, 33 A.D. And he was using parables about farm animals and seeds and, and things like that. I mean, how many of you have ever even seen a horse not on TV? So that what you have? <laughs> okay, how many of you have ridden a horse? Really? That's impressive. All right, maybe it's just for me. How many of you have ever planted a seed? Really? Okay, you are Colorado people. All right. But to, 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 to make my point, even though I guess all of you are very Aquarian and farmer-type people, um, Jesus was telling his parables to people living without Xbox 360s, to people without iPods, to people without TV, to people that... Uh, like to work with their hands, to people that didn't sit down in an office job all day and type on a computer. Jesus was telling parables to people that raised donkeys and sheep and planted seeds and, di- and were very agrarian in nature, very farmer-ish in nature. And so he was telling that's why he tells so many parables about seeds. Because people were like, duh, yeah, it's seeds. I just planted some this morning. I know exactly what you're talking about. But someone like me, I was like, I may have seen a donkey once, but he tells parables about sheep and donkeys and things like that, which all of you I guess are very familiar with. (laughs) So you read it. Number one, you read it like a person that's from an ancient culture. Number two, I'll just list these and kind of talk about them quicker. Number two is you look at the cultural and historical. Uh, You make note of the the cultural and historical features. Like today, when we look at the parable of the wedding feast and the wedding banquet and some dude that does, isn't wearing the wedding clothes and he gets taken away and beaten up, it seems like, whoa, what? why wasn't he wearing the wedding clothes and what's the big deal about not wearing, wearing the wedding clothes? Well, that's a cultural thing back in that day. And so we're going to look at that. Number three, listen to the context of Jesus' teaching. Let's uh, see. Context. Context of J.C., that stands for Jesus Christ's, context of Jesus Christ's teaching. If he's in the middle of teaching about faith, and then he tells a parable about a mustard seed, then the parable is probably about faith. Even if Jesus doesn't say, here's a parable about faith, the the seed represents this, this represents this, and this represents this, he doesn't need to. He's talking about faith, and then he gives a story about it. So the context of Jesus' teaching, number four, uh, who the parable is to? So, to whom? Question mark. Sometimes Jesus tells a parable in direct correlation to someone asking him a question. He says, uh, "How do I? How am I saved?" You know, someone asked, "How am I saved?" And then Jesus says, "Well, let me tell you a parable about uh about some sheep's or something." I'm just I just totally made that up. Uh, is it sheep, plural? Sheep is the plural. One sheep. One what? One lamb. <laughs> All right, I'm talking. Listen to me. Stop talking about sheep. <laughs> Number five. <laughs> uh, we have some fun in here, don't we? Yeah, we do. I do, at least. I'm just rolling. Uh, let's see. Pay close attention to the end. In- Number five, the fifth and last one, is pay close attention to the end of the parable. End of the parable. The very end of the parable, Jesus may give a one liner, like a cap, the capstone of the parable. In the parable that we read today, he gives a one liner at the end of that parable. We'll talk about that in just a second. Um, at the end of the parable, he may end the story in a weird way, and you're like, wow, the ending must be more important. That's usually, that's sometimes the case, that the end of the parable is has a lot of meaning. So this, ladies and gentlemen, is what we're going to do today when we reinterpret the first parable that I read this morning. So these are just some points on how to read a parable. Let's move on. One of the the greatest things that Jesus talks about in parables, if you were to categorize all the parables, which is kind of fun, I got books that did that, and I was like, wow, this is kind of cool, about all all the things that Jesus tells a parable about. If you were to line those all up and count, well, what's what is one subject that he gives the most parables about? Do you know what it is? It's the kingdom of God. That's, what's in, that's the next thing that's in your notes. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the number one subject that Jesus likes to tell parables about. What in the world is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Well, first let's look at how many parables are about the kingdom. He's, he, he begins a lot of different parables about the kingdom of of heaven is like, and then he'll tell a parable. I have a whole bunch of scriptures that I want to read for you just real quick. Um, uh, they're, they're, they all start with the kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew 13, 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed in his field. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. The kingdom, Matthew 13, 33. The kingdom of heaven is like a yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour and worked it all the way through the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and in his joy went and sold all he had to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net let down into the, into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. The kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Matthew 18, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to sell, settle his accounts with his servants. Matthew 21, 20, verse 1. Kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work his field. Matthew 22, 2. This is the parable that we read today. The kingdom of heaven is like a a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Mark 4, 30. What shall we say of the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant into the ground. (gasps) I'm out of breath because Jesus loves to begin parables with. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a story, a parable about what the kingdom of heaven is like. So what is this kingdom of heaven all about? I think we would be wrong if we just said that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, same thing, Jesus uses them as similes, he uses them back and forth, same exact thing, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. I think we would be wrong if we just said that the kingdom of heaven is just salvation, if we just said, oh, salvation is what Jesus is talking about, I think we'd be wrong because we have to do this, the cultural and historical idea of the kingdom of heaven. In some ways, this, this first idea, when I first learned of it, blew me away. So pretend, just for a second. You can put your pens down, your pencils down for just a second. Um, pretend you're a little boy or a little girl living in, let's just say, 0 A.D., right around the time that Jesus came back. You don't have to close your eyes unless you want to. Um, You're a little boy or a little girl, a Jewish little boy or a little girl, around zero AD, living in Israel, maybe living in some little small town in Israel, and you're sitting in your house, uh, in your little you know, maybe thatched roof house with clay bricks. You're sitting there playing your Xbox 360, and some people, just kidding, Maybe you're playing with a dreidel. You know what a dreidel is, the little top thing? Because you're a Jewish little boy or girl. That's what you play with. You didn't have the Xbox, you had a dreidel. One's better than the other. I think the dreidel's better. (laughs) You know, I have an addiction to video games. I realize that I am powerless against them and cannot touch a video game. Some of you guys, maybe some of you girls, know what I'm talking about. You'll start playing a game like Spring Break uh, about three years ago, I was graduating seminary, and during this break, this spring break, I decided I need to set aside time in order to find a job, because i 'm graduating in a couple months. But instead, uh, my roommate had this game called Far Cry. Anybody? So, anybody know that? No?. Okay. A couple couple video nerds know it. Uh, it 's called Far Cry. it 's like the shoot 'em-up game. I started playing this game and needed to get a job after I graduated, but I played this game for like 16 hours a day. I am an addiction and since that spring break I haven't touched a video game. I know it's a problem I have. You know Nintendo like back in the day I would play until my fingers were like oh mom, mom help. (laughs) But anyways, all right that has nothing to do, it's just me getting distracted. Okay, imagine yourself maybe closing your eyes will help you, maybe not. You're a little boy or a little girl playing inside your house around 0 AD. Your house is probably made of uh, brick. Uh, like mud brick, you have thatch roof, it's a small little house. All of a sudden somebody knocks on your door and men come busting in saying they're tax collectors. Maybe they hold your dad down, maybe they hold your mom down, and they rummage your house because money, like real money, paper money or coin money, wasn't that popular in that time. And so maybe they just took something of value. Maybe they took some, some jewelry or they took some animals to pay taxes to the Roman government. And so sometimes what really ticked off Jewish people is that they weren't citizens of Rome. They were not citizens of Rome. They didn't have the right to vote. They didn't have a right to a fair trial. But they were taxed because they lived in Rome, because Israel was part of Rome, because the Roman Empire had come and conquered Israel. So you're this little boy or a little girl sitting in your house. You just saw a bunch of people come in in the name of tax collecting and stole a bunch of stuff. And what would sometimes happen, what would really tick off the Jewish people is that sometimes the Jewish people themselves were the tax collectors. And and on the authority of the Roman government, they were taking taxes for the Roman government, even though they were Jewish themselves. So you see this picture of of someone just stealing, basically. And usually a tax collector, a lot of times they were hated because they would take a whole bunch of stuff and then keep some for themselves and then give some back to Rome as taxes. And so you're this little boy or this little girl that just got their house raided by tax collectors on a Roman authority and your dad, said, your dad may be crying or he may have just cried and said, oh, what a bad situation. And he pulls you up on your lap and he says, things are going to be better someday. Did you know that God has promised us a king? A Jewish king is going to come into Israel and is going to rule Israel and we're no longer going to have to be, uh, give our authority to this Roman government. But we, as Jewish people, as our family, as our extended family, we are going to rule this land, this Israel that God promised us Israel. If you read the Old Testament, does God promise the the land to the Israelites? Yes, he does. That's God's promise to them. And and so your daddy pulls you up on his knee, and he says, let's look at this passage in Isaiah. And maybe you're lucky enough to have a scroll of Isaiah sitting right there. And he pulls it out, and he says, read this, Isaiah 9, 6. He says, for to us a child is born, to give a, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. And your father says, remember David and the stories I told you? Da- king David, there's going to be another king in the line of David that's coming. And over his kingdom, establishing, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so you're that little boy listening, maybe as your father is, is tears in his eyes saying, things are going to be better someday. And then maybe he pulls out the scroll of Psalms, the book of Psalms, and he reads Psalm 89, 27. And it says, I will appoint him, my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain uh, my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail I will establish in his line forever his throne as long as the heavens endure. And then maybe your dad puts you down, and your dad kneels down, and he starts praying. And you overhear your dad praying for you, saying, God, maybe in their lifetime, in my son or daughter's lifetime, this king will come, and his kingdom will be established here in Israel, and we'll no longer have to be subject to the Roman Empire. We can carry out the law as if it's supposed to be carried out. We're supposed to inherit this land. And your dad starts praying for you. That is what. That's the context. And so imagine yourself zero AD. You're that little boy or that girl, and you grow up, and you're listening now to Jesus, Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven. It it gives you a little more social, uh, cultural, historical background, don't you think, to what this kingdom is all about? Just one more thing about the kingdom. in the eyes of a Jewish person around 0 A.D., 33 A.D., there were three, excuse me, there was four political parties of the Jewish people that wanted to carry out the law and wanted to be Jewish in every way, but couldn't because the Roman Empire was, was there. The Roman Empire had its hand of justice upon the people that wasn't necessarily their way of carrying out things. And there's four political parties. You've probably heard of these before, quite possibly in the Bible or just in um, thinking about things. The, the Zealots, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Have you heard of those political parties before? The Zealots were the people that said, let's fight the Roman Empire. And so cities all around in, in Israel, cities would rise up and riot against the Roman authorities there and sometimes gain control of that city. But then the Roman Empire, with all its might, would come in and get the city back. And so the Zealots were, the, were this party that uh, the Romans were very afraid of because they were given to rioting. The Essenes were people that, were, they were like the hippies. They were the people just, oh, let's just go out, let's move out to the woods and create our own little community where the Rome won't bother us. That was their way of dealing with the, the suppression that was on them by the Roman Empire. The Sadducees, have you heard of them before? They're in the Bible. They said, let's just ignore the fact that Rome has its hand on us and let's just worship in the temple. Let's just do everything we can to worship in the temple like we're supposed to and kind of ignore that the Roman hand is on us. And then the Pharisees, of course, what was their big way of getting around the fact that Rome was, had their hand of, on them? They were all about the law. They just said, oh, if we could just carry out as much of the law as possible, we could still observe, observe the Sabbath. We could still observe these laws. And so the Roman authorities don't have any control over that. So we could just push the law. So that's That's just a little more background, a little more cultural and historical idea of what Jesus talked about when he was talking about the kingdom. The Jewish people were expecting a real king to come and rule in Israel, in Jerusalem, and give them back their authority. But instead, Jesus said things like this. Let's look at Luke 9, 27. I'm just going to read this one verse. Imagine yourself in a crowd as as that Jewish boy or that Jewish girl, grown up and now listening to Jesus. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And you're like, whoa, what? Did I just hear you right? You're saying the kingdom is very close. You're saying that the kingdom is coming, that, this, that we're going to have our kingdom back. Did I just hear you right? And then you think to yourself, is this Jesus, the one who is going to be king over Israel and give us back our peace? And then you hear things like this, Matthew four seventeen. From that time on, Jesus began to... Rep- Preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. you're like, oh, wow, the kingdom of heaven is near. We're close to having a king back and for better times. But then, but then, he starts talking about how the kingdom may be more spiritual in nature. And you're like, this isn't the way I've always heard it said. He says things like this in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of the righteousness for, their, because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you're, so you're sitting there listening to Jesus and saying, oh, is he just talking mamsy-pamsy spiritual stuff? We want a real king. Ever since I was a child, my dad was saying, things are going to get better. We want a real king. And here this Jesus is saying that the kingdom is just spiritual. And then he says things like this, nor will the people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is is within you. And maybe you're sitting there and then maybe you get it. Maybe you get it and say, oh wait, this spiritual kingdom is more important than a physical, worldly kingdom. That this Jesus is taught, maybe you get it. You're like, yes, Jesus is talking about how he is the king of the kingdom of heaven and how that is grossly more important, more valuable than just Israel getting its peace. That Jesus is talking about a spiritual kingdom of salvation that you can receive in your heart that this kingdom is within us and no one can take that away. Some of some of the people sitting there may have got it. Some of the people there may have said, this isn't the way that I would want it to happen. I want it to happen with a real king. Not this just spiritual talk. There's this uh, professor of, uh, he's, he was actually at Fuller Seminary, which is my old seminary. He's, he's known for Uh, books about the kingdom and ideas and just really cool stuff about the kingdom. And he coined the phrase that when Jesus mentioned the kingdom, he said the kingdom is already, but not yet. That Jesus on earth is saying the kingdom of heaven is before you. The kingdom of heaven is right now, but it's not totally in fulfillment yet. You know Jesus is coming back a second time? You believe that, right? It's core to our beliefs as Christians that someday, and we'll be silly will be silly if we say when he's coming back, because no one knows. The Bible says that no one knows when he's coming back, but he is coming back. He's coming back on a white horse to rule in authority, and he will come back and rule Israel and rule this earth, a new kingdom, a new earth, a new heaven right here. Jesus will rule it. He's coming back for sure. But right now, the kingdom is already here. The kingdom is within us right now. It's already, but not yet. Do you get it? It's a good phrase. I like it a lot. And so let's look at this, this, this parable of the wedding banquet. Turn to Matthew 22. We're going to spend the rest of the time in Matthew 22 looking over the parable that we read in the beginning. So I'll give you a second to turn there. Matthew 22, verse 1 through 14. And maybe, you'll, maybe in some ways we'll get it a little more. The G, when Jesus was talking to these people saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, he tells them a parable. And people sitting there, would be like, hmm, that's, that's interesting because the kingdom of heaven is something that's supposed to be coming, right? Here, here's what we have. Jesus spoke to them again in parable, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. I mean, imagine the party for just a second. You're sitting, remember, as, as you're playing with your dreidels as a kid? I mean, that's about the most fun you could have. There was no Xboxes, no iPods, no entertainment business, no Hollywood, no movies, no DVDs, no Pirates of the Caribbean. Like a, par- a party like this would be, I mean, if the king himself, if the king of your nation threw a party for his son, wouldn't you want to be there? Yeah, it would be like being invited to, to by the president to come to the White House and hang out with uh, all the White House people and eat some really good food. Of course you would want to go. So the king prepared a wedding banquet for his son, party of the century. He sent his servants to tell those who had been invited to come to the banquet, to tell them to come to the banquet, but they refused to come. No reason is given as to why they would refuse to come to a sweet party like this. Maybe it's because, I'll get to this in a second, but maybe it's because it wasn't the party they were thinking of, that the kingdom they were thinking of was something that was going to happen on earth, but Jesus was talking about a heavenly kingdom, and they're like, that's not my way. We'll talk about that in a second. But then he sa- it says in verse 4, Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell them, those who have been invited, that I've prepared my dinner. Basically brag about the, how cool this party is. My oxen, fatted cattle have all been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. In those days, meat was a really, I mean, we have, we're Americans, um, home of you know, abundance, and we have meat probably at every dinner, every lunch, you know, if we wanted to, bacon at every breakfast. In those days, in a poorer nation like third country Israel, um, in this this time period, meat was a hard thing to come by. You had, you know, rice and beans. Meat was like, oh, maybe once a week you could have a delicious fattened cattle. (laughs) So he's bragging about how cool the party is. But, verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. And then it says something horrible. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, killed them. The king was enraged. Yeah, wouldn't you be too? You throw a party, you send some servants out to tell about the party, and the servants get killed, you'd be ticked, T.O.'d. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Verse 8 says, Then he sent, uh, said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited do not deserve to come. Go into the streets and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets, gathered all the people they could find, <coughs> excuse me, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Let's talk about that part just real quick. No reason is given as to why people did not come to the wedding banquet. I'm going to argue that, that because this parable is about the kingdom and because of this cultural and historical idea as we kind of interpret this parable, we could say that Jesus was saying, in this, in this parable, that people didn't want to come because, because they didn't want to. They, they didn't, maybe they didn't think that the kingdom was like how, how they wanted it to be. Maybe they wanted it their way, and it wasn't their way. And so they decided not to come. If they would have, if, if let, let's just say, going back to the analogy of you as a little kid on your daddy's lap, waiting for this triumphal king to come and to rule Israel, Maybe if he would have read verses like this in Zechariah. Zechariah is an Old Testament book. It would have been a book that the Jewish people would have had before Jesus came. And it says this, Zechariah 9.9. It's an amazing verse. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous, having salvation. Gentle, riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. All of you in here that raised your hand and said you had seen a donkey before, they're little animals. They're not like, you know, a king should come in on a big white horse with a, with a parade, right? But here, it's prophesied that a king will come on a donkey. Is there anyone that came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey? Yeah, Jesus, remember that story? Remember? He comes in riding on a donkey and people are singing Hosanna and laying clothes and palm branches as, as a king comes in riding on a donkey. Maybe if your father put you on his lap and read that, you would have realized that wait, this king that's coming is going to be gentle. He's going to be humble. He's going to be riding on a donkey. He's not going to be the kind of king that rides on a white horse. At least not this time. Second coming of Christ, it says he's coming on a white horse with all power and authority. Jesus talks about, lots of his parables are about how This is what a kingdom usually looks like. King at the top, that's the king. Here's all the people. The king rules over all the people. But Jesus teaches about an upside-down kingdom where here's all the people. That's me and you in Mill Sunday School. And then the king is at the bottom, that Jesus died for us, that Jesus serves us, that he places himself below us, that he washed the feet of his disciples. Remember that and how Peter was so upset? said, why would you wash my feet? You're my master. You're my teacher. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And so Jesus likes to talk about an upside down kingdom. And so people wanted, some people, the people that Jesus was really telling this parable to, didn't understand the kingdom because they wanted this. They wanted the white horse king to come in and take over the the geographical land of Israel. But Jesus was doing something much better. He was taking control of our spiritual lives giving us authority in his name that we might know him and so this last part of the parable we will close with this idea the par- the end of the parable is really weird and it takes it takes some of this to understand it the cultural and historical data verse 11 says when the king came to see the guests he noticed that there was a man not wearing wedding clothes big deal or not big deal in our in our culture if someone shows up to, like, I, like me and my wife got married uh, five-something s- five months ago, right? And there were some people there probably in jeans. I didn't even notice. Not a big deal. There was probably people there without suits on, without ties on. Big deal or not a big deal? Not a big deal at all. But in this culture, big deal. BD, big deal. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw them outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he ends it with a one-liner. Many, invi- many are invited, but few are chosen. And so you think to yourself, wait a minute, aren't these the guys that, that were just, didn't the servants go out into the streets invite anybody they could? And then they came in? Well, duh, that's why they don't have their wedding clothes on because they were just standing in the street chilling. And then they get invited to this wedding. Why would they have their wedding clothes on? And so I did what all you should do if you come into a confusing situation. I have a study Bible. and So I looked down at my study notes, and then I pulled out a commentary. A commentary is a book, a, a book that goes with the Bible that helps explain some of the cultural and historical things. And it says that in that culture, <coughs> the wedding party would be the ones to provide the clothing for their guests. And so when someone showed up in their street clothes, you'd go into a separate room and clothes beautiful wedding clothes would be given to you. And so you're like, sweet, get to wear these. And you go into the party, and everybody's got the sweet wedding clothes except for this one dude. We don't know why. No reason is given as to why this dude doesn't have the proper wedding clothes on. For me, I I, I try try to think of an analogy, and I thought of the analogy of like a high school graduation. When I graduated high school, you had to graduate with the cap and gown. You couldn't graduate and just walk a clock walk across with anything on or nothing on. <laughs> you had to pay your respect to the school and be all uniform. You had to give your respect to the people in the audience, your parents, the people that came to see you. You had to look nice. You had to have cap and gown on. You had to be uniform for the reason of showing your respect. And as, as we I think we even had a, we had a sign something that said we will not change or modify our gowns or caps. Did you guys have to do that when you graduated high school? Because I guess in the past, I had, I had heard rumors that somebody in the past, I graduated in 96, which was a little ways ago, but somebody even longer before I graduated in 96 had uh, embroidered <laughs> the band Guns N' Roses on the back of their gown and thought they were all cool and like, Guns N' Roses. <laughs> and just, I mean, it's a disrespectful thing. I mean, of all, think Guns N' Roses, come on, that's ridiculous anyways. But someone had, it's just disrespectful. And so even in our culture, our culture says, you know, if there's a costume party and you show up and you're not really wearing a costume, really it's not that big of a deal. No one's going to tie you hand and foot and throw you out into the streets, as it says in here. But in that culture, it was a really big deal. The wedding clothes were provided for you. And it was looking at the king and with total disrespect saying, I don't need to wear your clothes. I could do things my way. And so I think of it, I mean, who knows the story behind why This particular man did not want to wear the wedding clothes. But I think of it maybe as, maybe this guy was really prideful, arrogant. Maybe he was rich. And he saw all these other people that had been invited in off the street, all these poor people wearing these nice clothes. And he thought, well, I'm already wearing nice clothes. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to go to this party dressed in my own clothes because this is my way. But the king was disrespected by someone saying, I'm just going to do my things my way. So he tied him up, he had his servants tie him up, throw him out of the party, because he was, he was trying to do things his way. I'll close with this verse: John 19, 15. It's a really interesting verse. The context is Jesus standing there after he had been whipped, after he had put the crown of thorns on. He's standing there with Pilate. Pilate standing there, Jesus standing there, the crowd of people, mostly Jewish people, high priests, Pharisees. <coughs> They shouted, the Jewish people in the audience shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And then Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? See, the Jewish people in the audience wanted Jesus dead because he was claiming to be king of their, and they didn't want him to be king. He came riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. He was humble. He washed people's feet. That's not a king, right? Wrong. But they didn't know that. And so they were saying, Crucify him. Kill him. Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? What do they shout back? They shout back something blasphemous. They shout back, we have no king but Caesar. That's what the chief priest answered. You see how they had it all wrong? They should have said, we have no king but God himself is our king. But instead they shout back, we, we have no king but Caesar? Why would they do that? Well, they were wanting their way. They were trying to respect Caesar, Pilate, saying, We want this man dead. We want it our way. We want things to look like our way. When in reality, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways. We can't have our way. We can't be the prideful person that shows up at a party saying, I'm going to get my way. I don't have to dress up because the king tells me so. I'm going to show the king what's up. No. That God is God. God is all-powerful. God's ways are the ways that count. Would you bow your head with me? God, we, right now, as, the, as, as we sit in here as the Mill Sunday School, God, would you show us things that, that our heart may be proud in, that we may have, we may want our way, and that way may not be your way. God, would you let us conform to you, the creator of all the earth, of all the heavens, of the universe, God. Let us conform to your ways. And God, just in this moment, would you show us specific things that we need to repent of, that we need to say, God, our ways are not your ways. We're sorry. Would you forgive us of our sin? Would you forgive us of our pride? Would you forgive us of ways that that we've offended you by not conforming to your ways? And we just invite you in to do that, God. We invite you in to lead us to repentance this day. And we know, God, that you are faithful to forgive. That no matter what we've done, what sin we've had in our lives, that you are faithful to forgive us. The Bible says that you can wash us whiter than snow. That we could be pure in your sight. And we just give you all praise for that, God. We thank you that we could come to you as servants and that you say, well done, good and faithful servant, that we could please you by asking for forgiveness of our sins and following after your ways. And we're just excited to do that, God. So we worship you, we praise you, and everybody said, amen.